Welcome back to the show, everybody. The Broken Light Show. My name is Dave Mantell. Thanks for joining me once again on the Broken Light Show podcast here that I do on the internet. Uh, we had a great response last week to the first episode, so thanks if you were uh, one of the people that listened right away or shared on social media or subscribed. Uh, that all means a lot to me and was very encouraging, uh, and so we're just going to keep going here with uh, the next episode, and um, hopefully this will be a weekly thing uh, if I can continue to you know generate new content. So usually uh, the internet is uh, the internet provides content, uh, so I don't think that I will have a shortage of things to talk about anytime soon because people. People are generally foolish, and uh, the foolish people get published on the internet, and that gives me something to talk about. Of course, I'm also publishing myself on the internet, so I don't really know how that correlates. I'm going to try not to think about it too hard. we got a great show for you today. Uh, Michael and Andrew Tasselmeyer are going to be on the show uh, from the bands Hotel Neon and The Sound of Rescue. Two very good bands uh, that I enjoy very much and listen to quite often. Um, and two uh, brothers, twins, in fact, that I enjoy very much and uh, who I talk to often. And uh, so stick around for that. It's a, it's a good, good uh, conversation that we have about music and art and some church stuff and all kinds of crazy things. Um, but before we get to that, I just want to jump off here. There's a, a topic I want to kind of touch on. I feel like this is going to be a reoccurring thing. So, um, I'm going to try and just kind of go over some of the bigger ideas today and maybe we can come back to it later on and see what, uh, see what we've learned, you know, later on in our lives about this topic. Um, but the jumping off point I'm going to start with, uh, was a Seattle times article that was kind of republished. Uh, in Rolling Stone, I don't usually read Rolling Stone, um, but I was pointed in the direction of this particular article, tried to find some broader uh, context, and came up empty. It doesn't seem like there's very much um, more context to this available at the, at the moment, so I'm just going to read you what I have. It's in regards to the band U2. You may have heard of them. U2 giving out their latest album on iTunes and the controversy, quote-unquote, surrounding that release. If you're not familiar, um, at the uh, the Apple keynote where they announced the uh, release of the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus, U2 had partnered with iTunes and uh, decided to release their new album to everyone who owns a copy of iTunes, and I say owns, but has downloaded a copy of iTunes or has it on their phone or whatever, it just was automatically uploaded to your library of music. And people are upset about that happening. So I want to talk about the reasons for that, possible reasons, and uh, this interview. This is a quote from the Seattle Times. In an interview with the Seattle Times, Patrick Carney of the band The Black Keys said that making the album available to listeners for free, quote, 
devalued their music completely. He's talking about U2. Carney said this, quote, sends a huge mixed message to bands that are just struggling to get by. I think they were thinking it's super generous of them to do something like that, end quote. Um, I want to talk about that a little bit. I'm not a super big fan of the Black Keys to begin with, so I just want to make that um, clarification. He says that U2 devalued their music completely because they gave this record out. And he says, I think that they were thinking it was a, it was super generous of, of them to do something like that. And my initial response, I tried to find, like, if there was a, a further, you know, a rest of that thought, but that seems to be where the thought ends um, in all of the uh, articles that I was reading about this particular interview. I think that U2 was super generous in giving this album away. I think good for you too for doing something out of the box. You know, they're arguably the biggest rock band in the world, right? And here they are doing this unconventional thing. They're giving their record away through iTunes for everyone to have for free, to download for free. They're not trying to sell it. I mean, they do have, you can buy the CD, obviously, but, you know, people that just want to listen to it, maybe they, they haven't listened to U2 in a while or whatever, they're going to get reintroduced to this. I think the concept is great. Where it goes wrong, I think, is uh, Apple's involvement, and I'll tell you why that is. I think that when you have art... Um, turn into spam, essentially, which is what kind of happened. So whether or not you wanted this thing in your music library, this, this album, you got it. Everybody got it. And people didn't like that. They didn't like having something that they, that they didn't choose appear in their music library, even if it was good, which, you know, I, I listened to the album... I'm not a super I'm not super into new YouTube, but I thought the album was it was not a bad album. There's no it's not like uh you know iTunes shoots a piece of crap into your music library that you're forced to listen to. But some people were not happy because they they didn't choose to download this or whatever. Actually, there was another Rolling Stone article. I'm I'm going to read this to you. Um it's just, it's really sad. Um, but he, I, it's better if I just read it to you. Bono has officially apologized for his part in making U2's new album, Songs of Innocence, a compulsory free download on iTunes. In a Facebook Q&A dubbed hashtag U2 no filter. That is in itself just something. Uh, in this Q&A, the singer answered a quote-unquote question requesting that the band never repeat the album launch because, quote, it's really rude. Oops, Bono said. I'm sorry about that. I had this beautiful idea and we got carried away with ourselves. Artists are prone to this kind of thing. A drop of megalomania, touch of generosity, 
dash of self-promotion, and a deep fear that these songs we poured our life into over the last few years mightn't be heard. There's a lot of noise out there, and I guess we got a little noisy ourselves to get through it. I think that that answer kind of shows the the actual actually what happened, you know. If let me back up. Giving away music for free by major bands is not anything new. It's not something that people have really had a problem with because who I mean whose business is it really? If you're giving away your music for free, most people are just taking the music for free. If we're going to be real about it and and let's be real, most people are just taking the music for free anyway. They're going online and downloading it, BitTorrents, uh, you know, direct downloads, whatever. But even, you know, if we're going to go back to eight years ago, 10 years ago, you're having CD burning parties at your at your house in your basement or whatever. I remember my mom told me one time somebody had said something to her about this is like like 10 or 12 years ago somebody was talking about having a CD burning party and she thought that it was like people burning CDs like like lighting them on fire like a book burning she was really confused about that this was when you know before that was really a thing. It's it's weird to think about the fact that that seating burning has has kind of come and gone. You know, unless you have a car that only plays CDs or something, I don't think very many people are are burning CDs anywhere. Anyway, that's a that's a I don't remember why I was getting down that road because people are people are taking the music for free. That's the point. So giving away your music for free is not uh, I don't think shouldn't be looked on as a bad thing by consumers everybody loves free stuff in fact there's a precedent for this the first thing that i thought of when uh, this all went down was uh, radiohead in 2007 gave away their um their record in rainbows uh they did a, a kind of a pay what you want if i remember correctly there was like a you could download and then leave a you know a pay what you want including you know, zero dollars or whatever. Um, which is a huge, that's a huge model right now. Bandcamp.com, noisetrade.com, these sites that are set up to share art have uh, built into their system a way that you can kind of trade your music in a, a pay what you want. There are coffee shops, I think there was a Panera Bread that opened in this model, but um, I want to kind of keep it keep this reined in here so radiohead gave away in rainbows in 2007 and that was that the press surrounding that was amazing people were like i've never wow you know this huge band is giving away this record for free essentially and how are they doing that you know what does their label think and blah 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 blah, blah. there was no real negative effects of that the negative effect comes in, I think, like I said, when people aren't choosing this free thing. It's just thrust upon them, right? And I think that I think that people will learn from this. I think that this is uh, 
something that we can all look to and say, this is not the way to do this because people, something inside of us says, I should be able to choose the free things that I have or whatever. And, um, so we can look at this and, and, and see that this is, uh, maybe not the model that we want to go forward. But the question that I want to, the, the reason that I bring all of this up, the question that I want to kind of talk about is what is the value of music or of art? We can talk about that too, but today I want to talk specifically about music. If you remember back to that uh, Seattle Times article, Patrick Carney had said that U2 devalued their music completely. And so my question is, what is the, the value of music to begin with? This thing that U2 has supposedly devalued. Is there some kind of uh, golden method, right? Is it charging eleven ninety nine for a CD at Walmart? Is it giving it away for free on Bandcamp or on Noise Trade? Is it releasing your music on Spotify and Ardio and Beats Music and all of those streaming services so people can listen to it? Artists are still getting paid. I use that term loosely. And everybody wins, right? Maybe it's not so cut and dry. Uh, Derek Webb, the artist Derek Webb, co-founder of Noisetrade.com, several years ago, uh, right around actually, I believe uh, the time that Noise Trade was kind of picking up steam after the uh, the Radiohead incident, uh, he wrote this this article, a blog. Uh, you can still find it online. It's called "Giving It Away." How free music makes more than sense. In that, uh, Derek talks about how um, since he started giving his music away as a pay what you want, he makes more money from that than any other kind of sales of his music. Talks about the fact that uh, streaming services like Spotify only pay, uh, if I remember correctly, it might be different now, it might be less, uh, but at the time it was like point zero 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 two nine cents per, uh, per stream of a song. So you're getting a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a penny for one stream. So you guys can do the math and see how many plays you're going to need to make any kind of cash off of those streams. So he wasn't making any money off of that. He uh, wasn't really making money off of album sales either because that's not really a thing anymore. iTunes, uh, again, maybe there's a theme here. I don't know. We'll talk about that maybe sometime. But iTunes has uh, kind of changed the way that we people, common people, uh, consume music. Uh, there's, I think, for every uh, five singles, it was uh, the last time there was some kind of data for this that I read. Uh, it was like five signals for every album downloaded. So singles are selling five times more than 
albums and I think it's the the um the gap is only growing because you don't need to buy the album anymore. A lot of times the albums are produced to not be albums anymore, you know, uh where you have a couple singles, maybe three singles and those are produced and then the rest of the album is just kind of filler. Um and so people will buy those three albums and not or I'm sorry, those three singles and not buy the album because why would you need that? You know, you're getting the songs that are played on the radio and that's all that you need because there's nothing else good on the record. So Derek wasn't making any money off of record sales, so he started giving some of his music away uh, in trading it for, you know, he, he had the, the pay what you want, uh, but also at a minimum of uh, trading your email address. And this is the model that now Noise Trade and... Uh, Bandcamp both follow as well as other uh, music downloading services, but I think those are probably the the two main uh, services right now that people are using. So you trade uh, an email for a record. And so this article that Derek wrote is about how to, or how he leverages that email uh, and the information that uh, you know, comes along with that leverages that for, um, creating long-term fans, right? So, uh, you get an email and maybe a zip code or something, and then you can see where the people are that are downloading your record. You can plan tours accordingly. You can send emails to those people whose towns you're going to be in, say, come to my show. I gave you a free record. Maybe you liked it. Um, why don't we meet up, you know, and, and go to the show together. So then you play a show in this person's town who downloaded your record for free. They come to the show. A, they're paying admission to the show. So that's, you know, five or seven dollars, which is about what you would make from your record. So that's there. Then uh, they're coming and maybe they'll buy, you know, a T-shirt or something. Um, But maybe not. Maybe they just come to the show and they have a good time. Well, then next time you come through, maybe they see you again. That's twice now. Even if this is over a span of a couple of years, that's twice they've paid the admission to the show, which is money directly in your pocket. You don't have to worry about splitting it with, uh, say, a record label or um, even uh, music services like iTunes. You're getting money directly in your pocket um, over a long span of time. So it's really, for him, it was about creating long-term uh, relationships with his fans by giving them something uh, at you know, no charge and investing in that and waiting for the return to come, uh, as he played the long game. And for him, this has worked. This is now, um, or at the time of the article, anyway, this was his primary, uh, artistic sort of, uh, income. Um, I think now he's kind of switched over to managing noise trade as his main, Income, but that being said, Noise Trade operates um, in this. When this article was written, it was kind of at the, the birth of Noise Trade, and now Noise Trade is kind of built around this um, model. So is Bandcamp. You know, Bandcamp uh, works in the same way. You can set up your album to uh, be a pay what you want. So maybe you get some money, maybe you don't, but you get an email address and uh, zip code, and you can plan that way but that doesn't really answer the question what is the value of the music 
What is the value of the art? So we have to look at, look at the way that things actually are in the world, not how we would like them to be or what the ideal is. Because the ideal is, hey, I give you a record, you come to all of my shows, maybe you, eventually you back a crowdfunding thing so I can make a new record to give to you and that's you know that becomes our relationship. That's ideal because then the the fan is getting what they want. The artist is being able to support themselves and getting what they want. You know, they're being able to make their art and make a living and you know support themselves. Maybe it's not the same as the days of the superstar, but maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe there's such a thing as a middle-class musician or a middle-class artist, working class. But think about this. The reality is people are downloading your art for free, right? If it's on the internet, it's going to be downloaded. You can't really help that if you reach a certain success point, I guess. I don't have very many people downloading my music illegally because uh, I guess first of all, I give it away. And then second of all, I'm not really such a big deal. Maybe I am in certain parts of the world. But people are generally nice to me and don't steal my music. But I know a lot of my friends do have their music stolen from them or quote unquote stolen. Depends on how you look at it. Um, but downloaded in a way that is not supported by the artist, right? Film, television, same thing. And so the reality is the physical item, let's say in this case it's a CD, your CD, if it's uploaded to the internet, has no intrinsic value anymore, in my opinion. This is all in my opinion, okay? So I'm going to stop uh, qualifying myself. It has zero intrinsic value. It is now the property of the internet, and the internet can do what it wants with it. However, there will be, or there, there should be, if you're going to be able to make this a viable thing that you do, your art, there will be people who find value in the thing, not the physical thing, but the intellectual thing, right? Or maybe even in the person, the creator, maybe not the creation, but the creator. They buy into an idea of who you are, what you stand for, what your art means, or, you know, whatever. That is then the thing that has value. It's not the songs. It's not the film. It is the idea or the person or the thing that's not very tangible. That becomes what you're selling, right? That's the thing of value. So how do you capitalize on that? If you're going to try and make a living doing this thing that you love, how do you leverage that? I think you too tried to do it. I think they saw this model as a viable option for their the continuation of their, their band, their future, and they tried their best to do something new that would um, sort of, of play on this 
idea of selling the idea of you too by giving this away and then iTunes and Apple kind of swooped in and uh, caused a major hiccup in the, the plans but I think that their hearts were in the right place and so I think that we can look at this and learn How is it that we are going to, as artists who are striving to kind of have our creativity be a viable income option? And this sounds lame. This sounds terrible. But it's the reality. This is the the non-pretty side of, of art creation. If this is what you want, you have to figure out how to leverage the idea of what you're marketing. It's not so much the, the thing anymore, but just the idea, what it is you stand for. And that's what people will gravitate towards. And honestly, I think that kind of stuff is very hard to devalue. Because if someone grasps on to the idea of what you're doing, they get it on a, a, a next level kind of deal, they're going to be hooked right? That's going to be your propulsion in this world of noise. Like Bono said, there's a lot of noise, but if you can find a couple of people that hear you through the noise, that will get it, that will tell their friends about it, that will explain to their friends why it is that they get it and why this isn't just more noise. That's it, man. That's it. Anyway, we can talk more about this later on. Coming up next, we got uh, an interview with Andrew and Michael Tasselmeyer, Sound of Rescue, Hotel Neon, some great bands. I'll play you a little bit of their music in a second. Uh, But first, if you are enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to uh, subscribe on iTunes. We don't have a website yet. It's going to be coming live in January, so look out for that. But for right now, what you can do is go on iTunes, look up Broken Light Show, You can subscribe. You can even leave a review if you want. The more stars that I get, the happier I will be. Leave some nice words, even if it's just like, yeah, I like this podcast. That's great. Leave that in the feedback. That helps me out. It helps me get more exposure. And uh, so if you like this show and you want other people to find this show and enjoy it, you can do those things. Subscribe. Leave a comment. If you have any kind of... uh, comments on the show that maybe don't uh, need to go into uh, comment box on iTunes, you want to talk about some things or whatever, uh, you can reach out to me in a couple different ways. Twitter is uh, probably easiest. Uh, my handle is at David Mantel. Or you can send me an email. Send it to brokenlightrecords at gmail.com. We can talk about whatever you want. Maybe I'll uh, you know get some ideas and talk about it on the show. Whatever you want, man. I'm here for you guys. This show is about you, the real deal. All right, uh, I'm going to play you a clip from uh, Hotel Neon, and then we'll get uh, going with Andrew and Michael.
thanks for uh for doing this you guys absolutely having us taking a risk yeah i know the the first episode isn't up yet i've been battling uh itunes all day (laughs) i saw your tweet yeah they're uh they're very secret about their process, their uploading process. Yeah, I was like, maybe it'll take 24 hours or whatever, and then I get an email, and they're like, yeah, maybe three weeks. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what happens over there? Like, Nobody knows. It's crazy. <laughs> so what have you guys been up to? I'm recording some stuff. and Yeah, lots of, lots of newness. Um, like I was just telling you, Found a new guitar player, adds to the mix quite a bit, um, and so we've been having these working sessions going on a few times a week and cranking out just a bunch of material right now. So I'm really excited about it. Um, there's that, and then there's also on the Hotel Neon end of things, we have an album essentially finished. Um, right now, it is just in the hands of one Mr. Andy Othling and one Mr. Matthew Kidd to add some extra parts to that. And then after they get it back, we're shipping it right out for mastering. And so hopefully yeah. that'll be done by the end of the year. So. Man, you guys are blowing up in more ways than one. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, yeah. That sounds cool. So you guys are, so you're finished with the record, essentially. Andy and Matt are working on some stuff. I've heard I've heard of those guys. Yeah, yeah, maybe once or twice. Yeah, <laughs> they're good dudes. So, uh, so what's what's let's I I want to back up because we're just I'm like freight training here. <laughs> so you guys work on a couple different music projects. You got the Sound of Rescue, which is um, more of a traditional band. You got Hotel Neon, which is very untraditional as far as those things go. Why don't you guys talk a little bit about those projects and just kind of introduce them for the listeners? Sure. Mike, you want to take this one? Yeah, yeah. So I was going to say uh, Sound of Rescue, like you said, is more, I guess, accessible <laughs> than Hotel Neon is. Um, that one was kind of born just while Andrew and I were in college at the University of Maryland, um, just kind of messing around with the effects that we had laying around. I should say we we both grew up um, playing mostly music in church, um, which, for better or worse, has kind of a stereotypical sound. I think that's been permeating that culture for a while now. Um, and so through that, we were exposed to bands like Hammock and um, Explosions in the Sky and Caspian and, you know, all of those classic post-rock bands. And we're just really taken aback. I mean, we had always been musically inclined, but I think for both of us, hearing other bands create such just evocative, powerful music um, without even having to say any words was just incredible and kind of a paradigm shift, at least for me it was. Um, and so I was just so taken away with it that I, I really wanted to try making it myself. And unfortunately, 
we have audio evidence of some of his <laughs> first attempts. <laughs> they, oh man, they yeah. were not very good, but even the bowels of my hard drive. They yeah. Still <laughs> but yeah, so the the spark I think was kind of lit at that point when we started doing it ourselves and realized that emotional evocative aspect of it is even more. I think powerful when you're doing it yourself and you're not listening to other people um, kind of make it for their own because everybody's take on it is different and it means, you know, especially in wordless music, I think there is just almost this hyper-personal um, aspect to it that I think is even deeper when you start making it yourself. Um, and so we just wanted to try it and it kept going and snowballing into this thing. Eventually we recruited our younger brother Steven to play drums for us um, and yeah we kind of made a few records and played some shows and I think gosh it must have been two or three years into doing that of the more I guess traditional post-rock sound um, that we got a little Andrew and I at least got a little restless and kind of wanted to try something different, and I think that's kind of the impetus for where Hotel Neon started. And I'll let Andrew talk about that one more. Yeah, yeah. More. Um, you guys are doing the twin thing on me. You just like pick up where the other one leaves off. It's crazy. <laughs> hey, we try. <laughs> it's in our DNA. Um, yeah. So, so Hotel Neon was kind of the thing that happened after we got tired of doing um, uh, the the post-rock thing. <laughs> and so we, it was really just more than anything, it was just kind of an outlet um, for us to mess around with a few ideas we had laying around that didn't really fit with Sound of Rescue stuff, but we knew we liked and we wanted to use it. Um, and I think for me, at least, I got into the whole ambient post-rock scene what have you, um, through that drone sound. I've been listening to Seller and Lucille and Kyle Bobby Dunn and all those kind of super minimal, Stars of the Lid, all those super minimalistic bands like that, so that's always appealed to me. Um, yeah, and, and I think a lot of that also comes through in The Sound of Rescue, at least when a when I think of, when I try and describe the type of music that we play in the Sound of Rescue, I always, I kind of jokingly but semi-seriously call it drone rock, just because I think we those elements have always kind of been there for us. Where we're just very into finding one melody or one texture and kind of seeing, all right, how far can we push this and how big can we make this single simple element sound hmm. yeah. I totally interrupted Andrew so <laughs> yeah, <you're laughs> there are no rules here you guys can just talk whenever you want <laughs> yeah um, so I've always been a huge fan of that drone minimalist sound and I knew I wanted to do something with it and Mike was right there too we had been doing Sound of Rescue for like two or three years at that point and we basically just needed to make a new sound, and so that's exactly what we did. Um, we we uh, 
didn't really set out with too much of a purpose for it. We just kind of wanted to explore a little bit, and I think you can hear that in the first album a little bit. It's just kind of putting feelers out there, exploring, um, focused more on the textures, and just getting new sounds out of our equipment. Um, and so now with our next release, I think we kind of took that sound and we really latched on to um, what we're good at. I think we found that out. And I think our next record you'll hear it has a lot more of a solid direction to it. So it's exciting and it's fun. It's just a really great, nice outlet um, to kind of pour ourselves into. Um, I, we've played a few shows as Hotel Neon, um, and those are always so much fun. <laughs> it's just such yeah. a like, it's just such a casual, loose. Um, almost no rules exploration for us, so um, I, re- I really like what we do with, with Hotel Neon. Wow, man, that's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think we can just call it, just like interview over, that's done, we can uh, publish this now. That's great. We, pra- so, we, uh, yeah. we drilled each other with practice questions. <laughs> Excellent. Um. Let's talk about uh, a couple of things. You talked about having more of a solid direction with this next record. I, I wonder what that, if you can put it into words, what does that look like for, uh, you know, uh, for the casual listener, they pop on the self-titled, uh, perhaps on cassette tape, and uh, they're like, well, this has this doesn't go anywhere. It's just a thing, and you put it on, and... Right. Uh, so what do you mean when you say it has a, a direction, a, a solid direction? How would you contrast that with the first record? Yeah. Um, the uh, it, And this actually kind of applies to both bands, so I'll talk about each for a little bit. Um, with Hotel Neon on our first album, it's very much um, static, very minimal movement of parts. We kind of latch on to a pre- each song has kind of its own texture, and we just kind of latch on to that and explore it for all it's worth. Then move on to the next track and do the same with a different texture. Whereas on the next one, um, still playing around with the title or the name of it that we want to use to characterize it. But in writing each of the pieces on that album, um, we had the conscious thought of including um, multiple elements in each piece that are slowly moving. So I'm not sure what the end title is going to be, but it's going to be something around movement or motion or something like that. There will be different elements in each track, whether it's a melody, a distant melody, or an effect, or um, what have you, that will be moving or revolving around each other. So you can hear a lot more intricacy in each song, I guess. Um, They're a little more complex a little more orchestrated, and um, I, I really like the way that it's sounding. And that's almost the exact same principle with the new Sound of Rescue um, tunes that we've been drawing up. They feature a lot more direction, a lot more um, orchestration and deliberate sequencing of parts, whereas in previous albums, like on Forms, we intentionally avoided that. We kind of wanted it to just be these big blocks of sound that could be interpreted a number of different ways, whereas in our new one, um, what we've what we've written so far and what we've been able to record in um, some practice sessions has been much more uh, 
focused in much more kind of um, uh, sequential. I'm really bad at describing this, but there's, well, there's also think. the fact that Stephen is a much more capable guitar player than I am. So. <laughs> oh man, they're kicking you out. Your, like like melody. Nice yeah. <laughs> jobs on the line. He's on the hot seat. Stephen, <laughs> Stephen being the new guitar player that you guys got. <laughs> yeah, so I think the general uh, the general theme of the next two releases that you'll see. They'll sound a lot tighter, they'll sound a lot more cohesive, and I think they'll sound a lot more deliberate, where you can hear um, intentionally placed parts in each song. So, it's yeah, cool. We've always been very uh, sort of focused on texture over any specific melody or harmony, and so, and sometimes I think to our detriment, so it's nice to be able to explore things with a little more focused grounding yeah absolutely so you guys are on the east coast mm-hmm. we are born, you born and raised we didn't talk about this last time you guys were in town so i'm excited to explore this. <laughs> yeah we were we were born and raised uh in baltimore maryland um right now i live in uh northern virginia just outside of dc um Andrew was in Wilmington, Delaware, but now he just recently moved to the uh, city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. So, Philadelphia. Uh, How's that working out for you, Andrew? Oh, I'm loving it. It's such a cool town. Um, I tell everyone this. It reminds me a lot of Baltimore, just on a bigger scale. It's got that same kind of grit and attitude to it, and I feel like I fit in really well with that. Um, and met a lot of cool people so far, so I think it's going to be good not only for uh, me personally, but for our band and making connections and uh, playing new places. Awesome. You said you guys you guys grew up in church and did sure did some of that stuff. Well, how did that uh, did that like shape? You said it kind of got you into the kind of music that you play. Oh yeah, I mean it well, got it me forced us to practice to begin with. I mean. <laughs> Like, the fact that we, we knew we had to play every week, at least for me, kind of made me just play more by the, by virtue of that. But also a lot of the sounds that we were into tended to be more of the, I guess, ethereal stuff, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Uh, just more of the uh, songs that tended to focus more on creating moods and vibes rather than you know singing the catchy pop punk chorus and getting everyone all revved up but uh, um, so yeah that I mean for me I think that was really the start of, of thinking about music in terms of the emotional connection and conveying um, you know some kind of deeper meaning as opposed to just wow that's a really cool sounding guitar riff or uh you know i really like i really like this style of music so i'm just only gonna play this kind of music you know just just thinking about music as more of an art form instead of just something that was a cool hobby but yeah yeah i mean for me it was kind of the start of music period um it was uh, I think, gosh, I mean, I had been listening to music in like middle school, but my 
taste really sucked, to be frank. <laughs> and, and I didn't really know what I was doing with it. Um, but in... When was that, Mike? Was that ninth grade that Eric asked us to start playing? Yeah, yeah that would have been ninth grade. Yeah, he asked us to start playing in the band because he needed another guitar player and he needed another bass player. And that was kind of the kick in the pants that got us even playing music together uh, in the first place. And it just opened so many doors for us. I mean, we met, gosh, we met so many awesome people at church um, and made so many friends. It was, it was really a, uh, it was really the start of everything, honestly. It got everything um, kicked into high gear and um, got me interested in continuing to play the instrument to begin with. So, yeah, it was a, yeah. uh, it was a start. I mean, working with, I think the other thing is when you're in those church music environments, you're working with usually pretty limited resources just in terms of, you know, you have to coordinate schedules between a lot of volunteers and um, there's not always the best gear and there's not always a lot of focus on, like, sound and you don't have a whole lot of time to practice so it also just I think kind of taught us to make do with pretty minimal yeah. uh, backing on a lot of fronts I mean for a long time I was really the only guitarist so I had to kind of play that lead rhythm hybrid style and I think that's still really defines the way that I play the instrument to this day. I still find myself, you know, approaching it in that way as if I'm the only guitarist, and thankfully I'm not anymore. <laughs> but it kind of taught me to to be conscious of not just my own sound, but how how everything is working together in the context of the band and in the room and just in the greater you know, message that we are trying to convey. Um, so I really appreciated that about, you know, growing up in that scene and having the years of experience doing that um, that we were able to have. Would you describe your current music as, like, spiritual in any way, based in any of that? It's a good question. I'd be lying to you if I said I wasn't influenced by that to some degree. We don't go out of our way to do that, but it definitely factors into um, the creative process. I mean, obviously, it's it's a part of my life, so it's hard for that not to see into the music in some way. So you guys are still, both of you are still involved in church stuff? or Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's harder. Yeah, it's harder now. In a way. And usually traveling a lot on weekends, but when we're both back in town um, near our respective home bases, then yeah, we we still um, maintain that connection and and we still play when we can. Um, just we just have a lot of great friendships and relationships that we've formed in that circle. So it's imp- it's it's important to me at least to stay grounded in that. And to go back to the the question about the music being spiritual, I, I mean, I think this is like it sounds like super new agey and hippie and like go oh my it. god, go for such it, such an alien artist response. But like, 
I mean, to me, a lot of the reason that I'm drawn to this music is just because it's, it sounds, the post-rock stuff I like because it sounds very big, and I think you hear that in a lot of the Sound of Rescue stuff that we do. Um, there's really less of an emphasis on, like, the immediate, what is he playing on guitar, or what is the drums doing, what is the bass doing. It's more about just creating this wall of sound, I think that sounds really huge, and for me, playing that kind of satisfies this this urge that I always have. You know, it's easy when you I I work at nine to five during the week, and so it, by the end of that, you can be kind of run down, and just to be able to to let out all the pent up frustration and whatever else is going on, just in terms of playing music that sounds huge and that evokes big landscapes and, uh, you know, makes you think just big on many levels is, is fun. And more than that, it's, it's really cathartic for me to just kind of let that out. Um, and for similar reasons, I, I'm drawn to the drone and ambient stuff that we do with Hotel Neon just because I, I mean, I, I just, I can't, it's hard to think how to word it without sounding super pretentious, but I just think there's, there's a lot of elements in our society kind of pushing us to just always be going faster and accumulating more and doing more, whereas, you know, I, I usually find myself wanting to do the exact opposite. Like a perfect day for me is just waking up in the morning, going for a run, drinking a cup of coffee, and like sitting on my bed listening to Kyle Bobby Don. Like <laughs> super boring to like most people in this day and age where I think there's just such a pressure to be always just doing like massive, extraordinary, remarkable things that will get a lot of, you know, upvotes on Reddit or, like, views on YouTube and shares on Upworthy. But I just, to me, I like music that is the exact opposite of that because it lets me just kind of sink into it and kind of, it's a meditation in, in some ways. I just, I enjoy music that just leaves room for me to think and process. And so I think that's kind of, sort of spiritual in a way, I I think. It's just this really meditative, uh, cathartic release. So. so what I hear you saying is that you want to make music that alienates people and <laughs> that nobody wants to listen to. <laughs> I'll clarify and say <laughs> I want to make music that is... Probably not going to connect with a lot of people, but leaves me feeling okay with what I've created. And if not okay with what I've created, then at least knowing that I let something go and that it's authentic. Um, I think that's, to me, more important than trying to, oh gosh, i got to make a nice record. I mean, a lot of times the feelings that I'm feeling or the issues that I'm working through don't really sound that nice, so the record isn't really going to sound friendly, and you know it may sound boring to a lot of people, but 
uh, for me, just the key is authenticity and being a musician, the way that I kind of process my um, struggles or frustrations or whatever, even my you know happiness, it's it's through music, and so that's conveyed in the music. And I like to create sounds that other people can just you know interpret however they see fit, because I I want the same in the music that I live to. Do you guys see yourselves playing music for a long time? Is this the is that the thing if you were to choose right now, is music the thing that you would do? Absolutely. No question. Yeah, I I wouldn't even hesitate to say yes. Well, it sounds like you're making all the wrong decisions then because <laughs> you need upvotes on Reddit and YouTube hits and I know, make that right? happen. <laughs> no. Well the thing that's you know, I, I do, I am kind of self-deprecating in that sense because I, I realize that there is not, you know, a whole lot of people who are interested in listening to to me play A-sharp through a delay and a reverb for like 10 minutes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, I, I really, I, I, it's hard for me to say how cool it is when we do get people from countries that I don't even, you know, cross my mind on a daily basis, like some places in, like, Eastern Europe. Like, we have a lot of people in Russia, for some reason, who download our music. We have a lot of people in, you know, Poland and Ukraine, and just, like, places that, to me, are, like, so exotic and out there. Having the sales figures come in from Bandcamp, even if they're not really big numbers, just seeing the diversity of, of who is listening to our music kind of encourages me. Um, and, yeah, I'm sure Andrew can add to that, too. But it's it's just really cool to see however minimal the response has been to this point. Um, it is really cool to to see the diversity of people who are, you know, in a however subtle or implicit way saying, like, keep doing what you're doing. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, totally agreed. I, um, music's just kind of part of me at this point. So I don't think, I don't think there will ever be uh, a time or, um, or a point where I say I'm done making it. It's kind of what I just have to do. Yeah. I totally get what you're saying too, Mike. I mean, uh, for we make similar music, I think, and or at least as similar as stuff like this can be. And it's interesting for me to look, and I, I joke around with my friends a lot uh, about, so, you know, you can look at those those statistics and stuff, and I make the joke all the time. I'm like, I'm really, you know, surprisingly big in Australia and New Zealand uh, and it, it's just it's funny because you know it's these places that you would never think of and these people that you would never think of like connecting with as American you know 20 somethings or whatever but yeah you yeah I mean it's really hard to even put into words you know it's like it you feel stupid for like not for for the fact that that's like 
you know, funny. But then you start thinking. But then you start thinking a little more about it. And you're like, like, well, why is that really so weird? You know, and I just, I really, you know, it's it's challenged me as much as it's encouraged me to, you know, stop pretending like just because somebody lives in Russia or <laughs> New Zealand or wherever, you know, they're not just as receptive to this kind of thing going through the same stuff that I do on a daily basis. So it's, it is a, it's a weird connection the internet affords you, you know? <laughs> For sure. I think being, you know, playing instrumental music probably has a little bit of something to do with that as well. You know, the fact that you don't have like a language barrier, you can just like base it off of your emotions. People can connect with that. Um, there's less, you know, barriers in the way right right that was just something i thought of right now yeah <laughs> yeah definitely i, I mean and, and i think that goes back to what i was saying before about why why i enjoy playing this particular music so much is there isn't there aren't a whole lot of barriers or rules you know on any given day like i swear half the songs we write are just total accidents like we're not even really trying to formulate a specific sound or uh, idea or message or whatever, but it ends up coming across that way, and it's kind of cool to package those into songs, but at the end of the day, we we really have no idea what's going to happen at any given show or any given recording session, um, and I, I think a large part of that is just by nature of the music that we play. So. Where does Kerouac fit in for you guys? <laughs> oh man, he Where gave us a nifty it? name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, uh, I just like, I just like his vibe. It's just so like, just so raw and so real. And the, I mean, obviously the Hotel Neon name. Um, uh, I think we've told a million people, but it comes directly from a, a Kerouac quote. Um, talking about the uh, the buzzing of the hotel neon outside his um, room, and I, I don't know. It, I just really like I like what his writing feels like. It's just raw and spur of the moment, and I think it very much captures what we do ourselves. <laughs> we kind of go in with a general mood, and then just kind of spill our guts out onto the recording, and kind of pick and choose where we want to build from that but like it's all there it's all just very passionate and real yeah I mean that that quote in particular from on the road also is it just it really hit me because at the time I I had only been out of school for a year um, and I was living in Alexandria Virginia um, at the time and I I lived in a in a studio apartment, so I was uh, living on my own. And I think almost every young twenty-something has this kind of wanderlust that they just sometimes feel just like so consumed by, you know. And and so I, I was sitting on my porch reading that book at the time, and it just really resonated with me because at the time I was just, I really 
wanted to just get out and go do something. And, you know, I didn't hitchhike across the country, but <laughs> started making new music um, through Hotel Neon. That line just kind of seemed to fit, and I think it especially fits the vibe of that record, like Andrew said, because that record, for me at least, is is a really kind of frustrated and angsty and a little more depressing, <laughs> if you will. Um, it's just it's just kind of a um, sad vibe. And the next line in that quote is actually, he talks about hearing the hum of his hotel neon. He's thousands of miles from home. And he says, uh, but I've never felt sadder in my life. So here's this guy they're doing, you know, these great big grand things, at least what looks like it. And then, you know, at the end of the day, he's in some random hotel bed by himself and he's never felt sadder in his life. So I just, I think there's a lot of cool elements to that image um, and how it, you know, kind of reflects the frustrations that I think a lot of people in our millennial generation feel just this like sense of kind of frustration and maybe the grass is greener on the other side, but at the end of the day, you, you know, you have to go out and do something about it if you really feel that nudge. And so we did it by recording that record. What do you guys got coming up? You, you're cause you, I mean, we talked about it at the beginning, but, um, I saw you posted something about getting the first record remastered. Is that is that a thing? Yeah, um, really funny coincidence. The um, the internet is a beautiful thing, like Mike said, connects all kinds of people. And so I one day opened my em- email inbox to see a note from um, uh, a guy over at Home Normal Records. They're based in Tokyo, and they have released. A, quite a bit of material, um, not the least of which comes from guys like Christopher Bissonette Bissonet and Seller and um, uh, Federico Duran and all these other awesome ambient artists that I really, really love. Um, and so he, he said he just happened to stumble across the album one day and was really taken by it and wanted to do something with it with Home Normal. So um, sometime in 2015, uh, probably around the middle of the year, um, that first Hotel Neon album from 2013 will be re-released and remastered um, on reel-to-reel tape. So there will be a limited, I think, 500-count CD release, and we're really, really excited about that because it opens up a lot of doors for us over in Asia and Europe. They have great distribution over there, and um, I think in the right hands and with people who know what they're doing, unlike us shipping tapes out of their bedrooms, <laughs> <laughs> I think it can see a whole new audience, and I'm really excited about what that's going to bring. So that's yeah. going to come sometime next year. That audience, too, is just really receptive to to kind of the drone minimal sounds. Absolutely. They always have been, and so it's kind of cool for us to have a foot in the door over there where I think there are a lot of people who, who will appreciate that type of thing. It's funny, yeah, we were talking about the sales stuff, just as a quick little side note, the statistics and sales notes and stuff. Hotel Neon does extremely well in Asia, and Sound of Rescue does extremely well in Europe. So, it's so you got the bases covered, covered then. 
Yeah, it's the it's the <laughs> North American continent that we're still trying to walk down. <laughs> Everyone else's fault. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's that thing in the Bible? It says, uh, you know, a prophet isn't welcome in his hometown, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Once again, I want to say a big thank you to Michael and Andrew Tesselmeyer of Hotel Neon and The Sound of Rescue. Good luck with your future endeavors, guys. I look forward to it. Um, you can find out more about Andrew and Michael at thesoundofrescue.com or hotelneon.com. Uh, thank you guys for listening once again. My name is Dave Mantell. You can join in the conversation. Tweet me at David Mantell. We can talk about the show. Or if you feel more comfortable, send me an email brokenlightrecords at gmail.com our website goes live in january so make sure you check in for that got a new episode coming up for you next week on wednesday if you want to get this dropped to you every week like magic go to itunes search broken light show click subscribe and that's all you have to do you can leave a comment if you want on uh, itunes the more stars that we get the better the podcast can get more support I'll get from uh, maybe some sponsors in the future. Who knows what this thing will turn into. Once again, thanks for joining me. We'll see you next week.